Welcome to this edition, this podcast of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. It's uh, Monday, uh, the 21st of February. Uh, that means that on Tuesday, the 22nd, the uh, top 10 list of the articles that uh, were read uh, the most by the readers of the Aquila Report uh, all last week will come out and uh, you receive it in your email box. Uh, usually comes out about 11 a.m. on at Eastern Time, so you can calculate it if you're in another time zone, or if you're listening to this uh, after the fact, uh, this gives you opportunity to just rehearse and what uh, what the top 10 articles were. And this opportunity for Paul Harrell and myself, Dominic Aquila, to come and uh, just go th- walk through these uh, articles that are top 10, just to give some background uh, to. Uh, extend uh, some remarks about it and just to say here's what our readers are watching now you have to understand and i say this every week because i want it clear that there are at least 56 articles that are posted every week out of which we have here the top 10 and uh, so not everybody goes to the equal report every day that's understandable uh but so at least it gives you an opportunity to come to it so uh here's uh you know we have articles on culture on uh, people, on biblical and theological themes, uh, some church uh, issues, uh, there are opinion pieces uh, that are there. There are uh, sometimes book reviews. In fact, we have one in this uh, this top 10 this this week and so forth. So it's a wide variety and we're just uh, noting these. So I just want you to be aware as the listeners and the readers that this is the uh, case. So Paul, it's... um, a great opportunity. We have a great list. A lot of things sort of yes. cross over each other and uh, cross match. So we'll uh, we'll tie those the those uh, dots. We'll connect the dots. Uh, yeah, and once again, yeah. this list is a great list, uh, but it's talking about really the culture wars uh, kind of within the church. Yes, um, and, oh, that's and a that's, good way to put it. Yes. Well, yeah, and and it's fitting yeah. because uh, I mean we do at least the allegation from. Those who are the confessionalists or the conservatives or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> we're the ones claiming that the progressives are paying a little bit too much attention to the culture. And so uh, we're pushing back. And so here we are, you know, yeah, the culture is. wars. Well, it starts that way then with the very first article, uh, the rise and fall of the Presbycrats sort of the uh, talk of the Democrats or the other crats that may have be there. Um, uh, the plutocrats, you could have uh, any number of crats out there. So anyway, the rise and fall in the Presbycrats, and it's by uh, the Reverend Ryan Beasy, who's pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, in which he basically has written a, a number of articles that are sort of a series. And this was the trajectory of the PCA uh, was what it was and why it is shifting. So this is uh, some of that internal debate that is part of the discussion that's so much a part of the things that we're talking about in the uh, internal culture. So we have the the external culture just in the world in general, in society, and then we have the internal culture of the Presbyterian Church in America and other churches because uh, we're mirroring uh, what other um, bodies of Christ are and denominations are going through. And so uh, begins, uh, Ryan begins with, despite voices warning, the PCA, again, that's the Presbyterian Church in America, was slipping down a progressive slope. For the most part, confessional churches, now referred to, and he sort of has a tongue-in-cheek statement because uh, of an article that was in response to his, uh, the neo-fundamentalists, that is the new fundamentalists, And the progressive congregations, and they're sometimes called the neoliberals now, got along well enough until recently. In other words, they co-labored, and now there's been a little bit more tension, uh, maybe a lot more tension that has existed. So while they had uh, concerns regarding the currents in the PCA, many small and medium-sized confessional churches were content to leave the work of the General Assembly largely to others. And now you can read in that that this is a statement that is really can be demonstrated historically that as uh, denomination shifted shift one of the things that is sort of noted is why weren't other people why weren't people speaking up well in one sense you have one group that focuses so much and in, uh, t- with intensity 
on local church ministry, uh, you know, preparing sermons, making sure they're clearly delivered, working with the congregation, having uh, to develop, uh, you know, celebrative worship and uh, exalting worship, uh, incendiary fellowship, and sort of explosive uh, evangelism as we reach out to the congregation. So when you get yourself focused into the uh, local ministry, sometimes the the things that happen in the regional church or the national denomination, it, it takes a, a backseat as we're not as involved. And so others who want the shift within the context of the local, of the denomination, they, they expend more energy at those regional and national levels. So that's something that just is a, a, a historic fact. So as a result, the PCA lurched slowly yet steadily in a broad progressive direction until 2019. And so BZ uh, brings out some of the things that uh, were happening in terms of this uh, uh, trajectory. And so the, uh, the, the, in essence, what it did, he's saying is now those who were focused more at that local ministry level began to say something's not right in our church and we're part of it, so we need to pay attention. And when we are starting to pay attention, we're not we're not excited. We're in fact dismayed and uh, sort of sullen about the the direction that the church is taking. So as we speak up on these matters, it uh, it creates a little bit more tension uh, in the life of the church. So uh, and so basically, I think we've said this on this program before. Uh, with the uh, with the revoice conference in July of 2018, uh, I think that was sort of a major wake-up call that stirred or disturbed the sleeping giant and the sleeping folks. And they weren't really sleeping in the sense they were not engaged. It was more, they were more focused on something else and they were not focused on what was happening denominationally. So this is what we uh, really need to uh, pay attention. So this is a, a good article in that regard. And I think that's reason it captured uh, number the number one slot in order to uh, say, guys, this is a wake up call. We love our church. We want to work with the all parts within it, but we also have to make sure that we're coming at it from our perspective and position and a, a, and a good application of our theological commitments. So uh, I think you'll find it very stirring and very helpful article that um, Pastor Beasy has given to us here. Yeah, and you know, my favorite part of this, Dominic, is the uh, second part of the piece, the significance of the General Assembly. And uh, there's the uh, organization called MORE, they're trying to get more ruling elders to attend. And this is uh, towards the end of that section, quote, if conservative and confessional elders stay engaged and active at the General Assembly and Presbytery level, we will be able to elect men to those committees and the SJC who will plot a course for the PCA within the old paths of the Reformed faith, who will not prioritize the culture's view of the church over the church's faithfulness to the unvarnished, countercultural, and often offensive proclamation of God's truth, and who will enable the courts of the PCA to uphold the standards all her elders have subscribed. Good stuff here, and like you said, Dominic, not surprised it was the number one article last week. Yeah, and it, because it does give a good picture of the landscape that we're working with and how folks have uh, awakened. Now, just to reference a little bit on the history that I think you've picked on a, a really good part of this article, what more, M-O-R-E, that one of the, of the ruling elders who, who started that, who suggested it, had attended his first general assembly a number of years ago, not too long. And he came away saying, here we have this general assembly with usually 12, 1300 commissioners, most of whom are the teaching elders or the ministers. And the percentage of ruling elders, that is the lay elders, uh, was something like uh, 12%, uh, 15%, hardly 18% of the total. So it was a very strongly dominated, uh, you know, by the uh, ministers as opposed to the uh, elders. And we have prided ourselves and pride in the best sense of that term of having developed our structure as being a parity of the elders. That is that, that even though we call 
one elder teaching elder and the other the ruling elder that in terms of authority and responsibility in the life of the church uh and the care of the life of the church they were to see be seen in parity and so uh, most of our committees are evenly divided between the ministers and the elders and uh and, and so that we take care uh if a commission is put together even at the presbytery level uh, it usually requires that it have a parity the equal number of ruling elders and the equal number of teaching elders so that's an important consideration so he got this idea then this uh, ruling elder and he called it more he because what he saw was the church was sort of in declining or declension so the mo of more is more orthodox and then re ruling elders so sort of a little acronym that is going there. And so the intent was, how can we stir, engage, and uh, educate the ruling elders, the lay elders of the church to be more aware of what's taking place at that regional level, the presbytery, or the denominational level at the uh, General Assembly. So that's a good catch on what you brought up, but that's a little bit of the background to it. So Moore has a website you can go to, um, more.org uh, more.org and uh, you can read up more on that and uh, so forth but meanwhile you've got this article by uh, pastor bz and which will be you know really helpful uh, to us all right number two um is an article <clears throat> by stephen uh, spinnenweber uh who is an art uh pastor of the Westminster PCA, Presbyterian Church, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. And it's uh, part one of a multi-part series that will be coming out. And he, the title is a spinoff of the book, of the title that uh, Greg Johnson uh, wrote, um, Still Time to Care. It was a book that just was came out, I think, in December of 2021. Uh, and it, the title then of the article is actually, uh, We Do Care, and then part one, a response to Greg Johnson's Still Time to Care. So what he is saying is that the title of the book and the focus that he sees in uh, in, doc, in Dr. Johnson's uh, book is that the church uh, hasn't been caring. And what uh, Stephen Spenenweber is saying is, no, we have cared. We we are and we are caring. Uh, there's not been a time when we haven't. It's just we haven't cared in the way that the uh, progressive side of the church thinks that we should care, uh, because there's a different theological perspective and attitude. But the care is there, and so he makes the argument in this article that uh, don't read uh, into uh, our theological perspective and of uh, the, the what we're holding up as the standard that we don't care that that's an inaccuracy and really it's not and it's not it's not true so uh it's an excellent article by Stephen, and really commend it so actually we do care and it's a response to do we uh still time to care as if there was no caring going on and he's saying we're not going to accept that proposition yeah, and it kind of gets into Greg Johnson's uh, arguments about, you know, how uh, heterosexual, uh, basically being a heterosexual is is just as fallen as being a homosexual, just in terms of uh, heterosexual orientation. Uh, and there's some there's some interesting stuff in here about uh, a married man uh, being able to uh find the opposite sex attractive without lust and it just seems that johnson is rejecting that right um and so that's uh it's a fascinating and i really mean that it's a fascinating argument uh that he is dissecting made by my by uh greg johnson so um i get no surprise why this is number two Yes. And also, it, it, one of the because it's going to be multi-part, so it's only dealing with one aspect of this. Uh, it just starts out with just saying, let's make sure we understand the terms, because the that's where it gets in, becomes problematic in um, where same words or same concepts can take on different meanings. And the uh, so 
uh, what Stephen Spenenweber is saying is that Johnson has spun it in a certain way and defined things a certain way. He says, and he's saying, I don't accept how you've taken what is common language and, and uh, uh, turned it in, on its head. And so I'm challenging that. And that's what he's doing here. It's very ironic. There's no hostility in here. And so it's a very good article. Another one that, uh, as we like to say, uh, for your own edification, also, if you're in a small group or you can have, uh, you know, share it with your friends, uh, your session and others in charge, just to make sure they understand that we're not buying into the background, the presupposition, the definitional terms that are part of the uh, still time to care. Uh, we do care and we're not going to allow you to tell us that we don't. That's the uh, gist of what this article is about. So that's wonderful. Well, then we do remember mentioned that we have uh, reviews and we have a review of a book that we've already spoken of before. And <clears throat> that is the uh, by this is by David Robertson, who is a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, but he's serving right now in Australia. He had been in Scotland serving at Dundee at St. Peter's and then uh, decided to go and minister in the, uh, the felt the calling of the Lord to go to Australia and serving there. So he writes a, uh, a uh, an article, regular article called the We Flee and we W-E-E -E, just because he's Scottish and they like to use that's a wee lad or we lass or something like that. Anyway, it's titled Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and evangelicalism uh, looming catastrophe. Now, and it's a review of uh, Vadi Bauckham's uh, thesis is that the current uh, culture wars in the US over racism and critical um, race theory are in danger of splitting the evangelical church and causing considerable harm. So we've had other articles that uh, either were dealing with uh, Vadi's, uh, Bauckham's, um, perspective uh either of his books so either uh, they weren't strictly reviews per se but they were uh spinning off of the thoughts that he had uh in his book and uh we even had some that were disputing it and taking uh, challenging uh Bauckham's, uh perspective so here's one uh, david robertson's you know, he's very incisive and careful in the way he writes and uh, and he even acknowledges that that uh, when he started out, he thought he had heard so many things on the negative side. He says there are uh, not many books that have made such an impact as they have made uh, that have made me change my mind. It turns out that Fault Line is one of them. Initially, I approached the book with a degree of skepticism. After all, I had heard uh, on the evangelical grapevine that it was, quote, extremist. Uh, quote, unbalanced, and that uh, Bauckham was guilty of, quote, plagiarism. And I'm against racism, and I think uh, that it's a major problem in the U.S. and the church. However, I'm thankful that instead of just reading about the book, I read it myself. And that's, by the way, a good instruction for all of us, especially one that uh, does offer up so much uh, on either side that we need to pay attention to that. He says, I can only suggest you do, you do the same, uh, so says uh, uh, Dr. Robertson. Bauckham's thesis is that the current culture wars in the U.S. over racism and critical race theory are danger of splitting the evangelical church and causing considerable harm. He believes that the acceptance of some of the language and premises of CRT by evangelical leaders is the acceptance of a Trojan horse. He argues that in the United States, it, the United States is on the verge of a race war, if not complete cultural meltdown. So that's quite an, of course, that's Bach, he's quoting um, Vadi Bakum there at that point. So he goes on and gives his own analysis and doing this uh, fairly lengthy uh, book review. So uh, Fault Lines, is a, we've already talked about, and we know other articles have come up that uh, dealing with the matter of the race issue. So basically, Paul, uh, just as summary here, is that there are basically three things or three areas that appear to be keep circling back around. They're separate, and yet they seem to be intertwined. One is the sexual issue in human sexuality. 
And we see that coming out with all the debate about uh, homosexuality and where it is fit into the whole uh, spectrum of God's creation, how he made uh, male and female and what the implications are. Uh, number two is the uh, relate the racial issue and how do we all get along uh, the various races and uh, the introduction of something like critical race theory, which has its uh, history and its foundations in a more, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? My mind just went blank on it. It's just a, a more sociological and political background. And then the third is the um, issue of um, the relationship of male and female, just in terms of the question of abuse and and uh, the looking again what it means to be husband and wife, uh, male and female, uh, not in the sexual sense, but for the purposes of how we get along in the home. So those three things seem to be intertwined in and, and, uh, all this. Yeah, and the main issue that I see it as is really a debate over the scriptures and the, the, the sufficiency of scriptures. Now, of course, I know the progressives are never going to agree with my critique there because who's going to say yeah we don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture because then that would be a clear strike against them um in this article particularly they're writing about Vody uh Bauckham's strongest point and uh, they say that in the book his most important insight is him dealing with anti-racism so you that's this idea folks that you can't just be not like well i'm not racist okay well that's fine but are you anti-racist meaning are you trying to tear down the structures that we believe are racist and uh, he um, he writes this, quote, evangelical leaders such as Matt Chandler, John Piper, David Platt and others are all gently taken to task for citing and taking on uh, uh, board aspects or broad aspects of critical race theory, such as using material like Petty Macin or Peggy McIntosh's now famous 1989 paper, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Bauckham's concern, which is Platt, which in Platt's case he unpacks in some detail, is that Bible teachers are proclaiming that they have had some life-altering revelation that has not been derived from the scriptures. He rightly sees this as an attack on the sufficiency of scripture. The only problem with this new religion is that it is a religion without salvation. As Douglas Murray points out in a short but insightful chapter in The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, there is no forgiveness in the modern progressive world. In critical race theory terms, if you are white, you are guilty, and there is no redemption. Anti-racism offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in an effort to battle an incurable disease. And all of it begins with pouring new meaning into well-known words. I'm so thankful that a black brother is speaking out against this invented racism, distorted language, and despairing legalism. So these two quotes here. Uh, really, really stood out to me in this uh, in this book review. Um, and, uh, you know, it was it's interesting, Dominic, uh, about the, the the idea that there is no penance. There is no way to be a redeemed if you subscribe to this new religion. The idea that if you're white, you know, you're guilty. And, uh, you know, I, I think we also need to add that when we when we see that type of language as we're doing it, if you really just think a couple of steps ahead this this kind of language, if there is no penance and you're always guilty and you can't ever actually be forgiven, well, th that's the type of language that causes human beings to do really horrible things that are legal by secular governments to other human beings. And so we, we I, I'm so glad also that that Vodibachum has written this book, because uh, I think he also kind of sees, you know, if we if we don't correct this, taking to its logical conclusion. Uh, these ideas actually will produce uh, just horrible, uh, you know, the, the type of the type of death that, you know, you see throughout the 20th century. Absolutely. And, and, and so the fourth article really gives begins to see some of the application working its way out. And this is just going to be one example. It's just the it's number four, four hit number four hitting a most hit uh, article and read. And it comes out of a situation at Gordon College, which is up in the Massachusetts, Boston, greater Boston area, uh, cancel speaker for describing culture and chaos is the uh, title uh, written, uh, produced by Ministry Watch and, and uh, uh, Stitch 
is the uh, one who wrote this particular article. It says students at Gordon College organized a rally in solidarity with women and the LGBTQA plus community after a speaker made what were characterized as misogynist and transphobic remarks during a chapel service. Now, there you have um, at least two of the three that I just mentioned, uh, the misogynist with the relationship, male, female, women, men, and how they relate uh, in, in their relationship and transphobic courses in the uh, human sexuality area. Uh, the, the, the thing of uh, race theory does eventually get its way in here as well. And so the uh, for a special series, uh, Mar uh, Marvin Daniels, the executive director and CEO of the Hope Center, a nonprofit that serves children, youth, and families in Kansas City, was scheduled as a featured speaker at the Wenham, Massachusetts College uh, annual Deep Faith Week starting February 14th. And so the Gordon Review reported this, that uh, that some of the statements that were made were perceived in, as being misogynist or transphobic. So um, in the context of this morning of a morning chapel on a sermon uh, based on uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Daniels discussed topics including identity, saying that the struggle to know who we are is a big deal both in Christian circles as well as non-Christian circles, and that social media adds to the confusion. So according to a transcript, which uh, is uh, hyperlinked here in the article uh, <clears throat> of his talk to the, the linked to by the review, uh, Daniel shared what he believed Jesus would say. He says, you know what? And this is now he's sort of saying this is what Jesus would say. You know what? If you hang with me, and this is uh, he's playing out as if he's uh, speaking for Jesus or speaking as Jesus, I can tell you who you are. I designed you. I fashioned you as my masterpiece. I'm perfect in all that I do. So when I create you, I create you with perfection. You don't need to live in confusion because if I design you to be male, I designed you to be female in my perfect, in my perfection, I have done that. So whether it's male or female, that's what I've done. So he described a culture in chaos where trying to redefine sexuality is being done for us and we have now to fit sort of into a new box or a new paradigm and so forth so uh, as a result it says some students objected to the content uh to the content took the social took to social media media following the sermon and the chapel service uh calling daniel's language hateful to both women and the trans community as well as many others in Gordon's campus and calling for a peaceful walkout at another event that evening where Daniels was scheduled to speak. So he was going to be speaking at a series of chapels and uh, other gatherings, and uh, they had to cancel the others. So <clears throat> here's the application um, and the division, because here's a, a very well-known uh, evangelical uh, college that is struggling with it internally. And uh, the students took their position because they wanted to be in solidarity with women and also the LGBTQA plus community as well. So there we see it coming to its fruition external. It's reason we can't we can't leave it aside. We need to discuss it, uh, have the the good study papers on it. The church has to lead the way and make the explanation so that there is clarity. The trumpet sounds one sound, not a confused sound. So we know what the issues are. So there's the application, Paul. Yeah. And I see this, um, let's see on this article, Gordon college cancel speaker for describing culture in chaos. And, um, I see like a, towards the end of the article, um, if you, if you click the, uh, the link that takes you to ministrywatch.com from the equilibreport.com, you can see a, um, I guess this is a flyer, a copy of a flyer that was handed out. And it says tonight, solidarity rally after chapel, come and stand in solidarity with the women and LGBTQA plus community that were traumatized by the degrading statements made in chapel this morning. So they had a solidarity uh, rally. And then on this flyer, we have this uh, rainbow flag 
uh, that, of course, you know, the rainbow uh, in America now stands for, uh, or I guess across the planet now stands for uh, uh, homosexuality, uh, when it used to stand for, uh, you know, God's promise to not judge the world by water. So what, a, I, by the way, we've talked about that before, Dominic, but how ironic <laughs> that is. Yeah, it is. Uh, <clears throat> and if that were enough, so that's article number four, what's uh, showing up on the evangelical campus, uh, this particularly Gordon, but there are other college campuses where uh, this is also taking place. It's it, it, so it goes back to uh, what uh, Vali Bakum said in his book that this uh, these particular issues, these fault lines uh, have all of the promise of if they're not handled well of dividing the evangelical world, uh, unless we get our minds wrapped around the terminology together. Uh, the fifth number article deals with an upcoming action that's going to be coming in um, to the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, the Christian Reformed Church uh, is uh, obviously within the broader spectrum and its history of um, Reformed evangelicalism, uh, but in the last number of years, maybe the last couple of decades, has been uh, trending and moving towards uh, more of the accommodating to culture or what we're calling the, at least in the PCA, you know, the progressive side. Uh, so the Christian Reformed Church in North America, a 200,000 member domination in the United States and Canada, now has a renewal movement called the Abide Project. Now, here it's on the other side. The Abide Project, which this article is about and written for by uh, Aaron Vriesman, who is a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, um, is organized it was organized in 2021 the abide Pro project seeks to uphold the historic beautiful biblical understanding of human sexuality in doctrine discipleship and discipline in the crc so because of the slide of the crc towards a more open as they would say sociologically inclusive of every type of folks so that when you do the the alphabet of LGBTQA+, you keep adding uh, letters to that. Uh, that plus indicates there's more to come. So he said this is the Abide Project is uh, intending to uh, give the opposite, said calling the church back to its historic confessional position. So this is a fairly new one, just organized in 2021. Uh, once in the past, you know, forbidding movies or card playing and dancing, the CRC had drifted leftward in recent generations. And then listen to this uh, quote out of here. Across the past decade, the push for full inclusion of LGBTQ members. So there, uh, there it is again that we'll keep on adding on. So here's this group abide uh, project that says we want to abide in the truth in our confession, of course, in the principles that. God has uh, given uh, to us. Now, in the <clears throat> uh, statement here as well, um, there is, um, let me go back here, just I, I replaced the article, that it, it says one-third of the Calvin University faculty, Calvin uh, Cal, uh, University and Seminary are in Grand Rapids, and they're the uh, owned by the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, so the Calvin University fact one third assigned a statement opposing the human sexuality report, which is going to coming to the 2022 synod meeting uh, as their report comparable to what the human sexuality report that the PCA developed and produced in uh, 2020. Uh, and it's called All One Body has released a series of talking uh, had videos of therapists, social scientists, pastors discrediting the Human Sexuality Report. Synod 2022 meets June 10 through 16 at Calvin University and will likely be, uh, it'll likely be monumental because it's all around that theme uh, that's going to sort of dominate no matter what other issues are there, this is the one that's going to be dominant. So the Abide Project, of which uh, Aaron Vriesman is uh, speaking, stated as goal is to adopt the human sexuality report and hold all church leaders to the historic biblical view of sexuality. So there we see it, this, like I said, playing played out in the life 
of one of the historic reformed churches that has shifted uh, most to a progressive side. And it'll be interesting to see what happens at Synod 2022 uh, with reference to this report. My only comment is, you know, back these are back-to-back articles. We have Gordon College and everything that we talked about there. And now we have this other place, uh, Calvin University, where you have one-third of the faculty. And, you know, I just think to myself, you know, our, our parents, I'm, I'm a parent of a young child, but what are, what are parents thinking right now when, you know, if you've got older children that are thinking about college and then you're like, well, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go to a state university, you know, that's, that's just too far out there. That's too progressive. You know, let me look at some of these religious uh, religious universities. Well, I mean, it seems to be it's an infiltration across the board, Dominic. Yes, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, it, it just yeah continues to uh, multiply. And uh, that's the reason why, again, quoting what Bakum says, these three things sort of in tandem together, the sexuality issue, human sexuality, the relationship male and female, and the uh, race issue, all are tied together. And if you're, and most of them being looked at now sociologically and politically uh, through the lens of intersectionality, of critical theory, and so forth, uh, and and uh, mixed in there with a, you know, view that the church doesn't care. And uh, it's called to care is the uh, title of the book we referred to before about. And the caring is there. The gospel is very plain that Jesus is calling sinners to himself, no matter what the label of sin is, uh, that we all are are in need of his grace. And apart from that, we don't have anything. And so uh, the the most loving thing we can do is uh, call folks to and call all ourselves to that grace that uh, only God can give, and which is transformative in terms of our understanding of what the scripture has to say. Amen. Yeah, number six is um, a compromise comes into the church. And this is written by uh, a layman, Richard Looper, Lopper, L-O-P-E-R. <clears throat> and um, he's a, a member of the Chestnut uh, Mountain uh, Church, I mean, it's Chapelgate uh, uh, Church is another guy that wrote another article on that. Uh, Chapelgate Presbyterian Church in Ellicott City, Maryland. Uh, he's had some seminary background, but he is serving as a layman in the life of the church, teaches a Sunday school class regularly. And just as he's thinking and has lived in within the context of Presbyterianism uh, most of his life, he is now sees the uh, compromise. So he wrote this personal statement uh he's not involved in the courts of the church as you know as an elder or uh you know minister or anything so he goes back to the beginning because he was part of the uh Presbyterian church usa which is the what sometimes colloquially we used to call in the days when there was a southern church and north the northern Presbyterian church in 1967 the Presbyterian church in the united states of america that's the PCUSA, in an attempt to compromise with culture, changed the wording of its confession of faith. And a key statement from the PCUSA's confession of 67, which is a new confession at that time, which was adopted and placed alongside of the Westminster Confession and Catechism. And eventually they added some other uh, historic um, confessions. And he's, <clears throat> the uh, he so he quotes a little just I'll quote part of it here and this is out of the 1967 confession the Bible is to be interpreted in light of its witness to God's work of reconciliation in Christ the scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men and he underlines that conditioned by the language thought forms and literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written so you can see he goes on basically saying that the scripture is uh, time-based and was affected by a primitive culture. And now we're in a different age and we need to make sure we're looking at the uh, what's taking place in culture and in the church with a new lens of that we've had all this history of time to sort of improve, you know, uh, so almost of an evolutionary kind of statement. 
So he, uh, Richard here says the statement directly contradicts scripture where it just says all scripture is God breathed and is therefore useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that uh, going along in that particular vein, he uh, refers to something that happened in that presbytery many years ago, back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when a man was being uh, charged, a minister, uh, Mansfield Caseman, uh, was charged with apostasy because he denied Christ's, Christ's sinlessness, bodily resurrection, vicarious atonement, and deity. And when the case was heard before the permanent judicial commission of the General Assembly, Mr. Caseman was acquitted. Uh, he was allowed to remain in good standing as a pastor in the PCUSA and allowed to continue teaching heresy. By acquitting Mr. Caseman, the Judicial commission, commission itself became complicit in apostasy as well. So that opened the door for other things. And now that uh, Mr. Lopper is in the PCA, uh, he says what happened in July of 2018 at Memorial uh, Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, pastored by Greg Johnson, uh, was the beginning of the same kind of trajectory. And that's basically what he's connecting those dots as he can can looks at what happened in 67 with the confession, what happened in the late 70s, early 80s with uh, uh, Reverend Caseman, and now what we're facing in the PCA. This part towards the end, referring to Micah again, when he asked if the people wanted to worship Baal, why not simply go to the temple of Baal and worship him there? Why insist in bringing that abomination of false worship into the Lord's holy temple? In the same sense, why does a minority insist on allowing the false teaching of ordaining self-described homosexual men to be pastors and church officers in the PCA? Why don't they simply seek ordination and service in the denomination that is already set up to welcome them? What's interesting to me, and I don't know why I've never thought of this before until now dominic but well, there are some people and we've seen this through the national partnership that want to expand the role of women within the pca and it just dawned on me how how is it that we have a self-described you know gay minister in, in in greg johnson and writing in usa today articles and everything else but we don't have women clergy uh that is, uh, at least in the progressive uh, list of things to do, the to-do list, I feel like the, the cart is before the horse there. Uh, has, and there's a joke to be made in there somewhere. I, I don't know where it is, but it's an uh, interesting reality right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, that's, the, uh, that's the tension point that I think a lot are feeling. The question is, uh, how do we you know coexist on this especially if the the rift becomes wider uh between so-called uh confessionalists and progressives uh whatever title the, that would be given so in the seventh article that that's brought up for uh for this discussion and it's another one by pastor ryan Beasy, who we spoke about with the first article and it's entitled contending for christ's bride the PCA has problems, but it's not time to abandon her. So he's arguing that regardless of all the issues that are going on, let's keep talking. Let's keep working. Let's see if we can find a way to bring things about. Uh, so the, he says the PCA is at a crossroads in many ways. Uh, she is a spirit, in spiritual crisis, but I do not believe now is the time uh, to depart the denomination. Uh, and he goes on to said he explains it more and he has it hyperlink because he has written an article of why we should be staying here's in this article he's saying okay here are what people who say well i'm not sure and we're thinking about leaving and how they argue and what some of the reasons um you know that they might want to move on to something else instead we make uh realist assessments in our situation and stand firm to ensure that the pca enters her next half century as a reformed and confessional Protestant denomination for generations to come. So standing firm in the PCA during the season of heavy debate will involve both difficulty and sacrifice. Uh, give some advice as to how to proceed during the seasons here. And again, there was another article that he wrote and he hyperlinks it uh, in this article uh, that will uh, help that. So basically he says, let's just, you know, step back for a minute, take a deep breath, and let's go through 
and see why we should stay or why we should go. So he says his reasons for departure, that mostly what this article is about. He has another one, reasons why we should say no. That's not the part yet. And the first one, basically, that he gives his reasons is peace. Uh, the argument goes something like this. He says, if we leave the PCA, we can align with churches and elders who have not been influenced by a postmodern view of language, who share our commitment to the Westminster Standards to reform piety, worship, and polity. Uh, this will free up resources currently devoted to battling over basic matters of what it is to be Presbyterian. Uh, this will be a good for everyone, uh, everyone's blood pressure. So that's the intent, very amenable. So it looks like we're not going to be able to make this shift. Let's make, let's uh, go ahead and, and move on uh, from here. And then he defines other things within the context of the article. So in this case, if you want to say, okay, you know, he, he's writing this to say, I'm just uh, speaking as if I were, uh, as one who would believe that, he says, at this point, I don't, I'm not there yet. Here are the reasons why he has that in other articles. So you, you can sort of now look at the big picture of those two main issues written by the same author. So he's trying to play and be an honest broker to say, let's make sure we're hearing one another uh, and make sure that each of us internally, our conscience and our hearts are in the right place as we're looking at the big picture, sort of taking the uh, 15,000, 20,000 foot look at the landscape. I, I got to tell you, articles like this are are really important right now. And we've seen a lot of them come through and they make the top 10 list at the Aquila Report, Dominic. And it's just because people are wondering uh, what's going to happen in the next uh, year or two, uh, what's going to happen at General Assembly coming up uh, in June. And articles like this where men are laying out their reasons of you know and, and really just their whole thought process considering what we're facing are very healthy it's very good and it's good to have lots of counsel and and lots of discussion about this i mean especially if you're you know somebody would be thinking of leaving that's we all can agree not a decision that can be made lightly yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the interesting then that the next article, uh, the eighth, number eight on the list, is um, written by uh, Bill Muhlenberg, who is serving as a pastor in Australia. So we have two Australians on the list this week. Uh, he titles this article, We Should Have Heeded Schaefer's Prophetic Warnings. It's referring to Francis Schaefer. Uh, he says that uh, even though Schaefer passed away and called home to glory May 15, uh, 1584, that he just a few months earlier, his book was released called The Great Evangelical Disaster. So this is 1984. Uh, the Anyone who is familiar with his life and work knows uh, that this volume very much followed in the same vein as his previous 21 books in which he was, you know, assessed culture, the church, mind, history, uh, theology, or to say, okay, how uh, how should we then live was one of the great titles that he had in the context of the world in which we're living and the, how the church exists. So he, you know, gave us always these large thoughts and patterns. And he said, we should have listened uh, to his prophetic warnings. And he therefore goes through in this article and just basically quotes certain things from this book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, uh, because he says these uh, quotes are so timely. Um, uh, he says, uh, beginning to uh, to a new young generation. Now remember, he's writing this in, in the early 80s now. And to those in the older generation who will stand and be counted as radicals for truth and for Christ. Uh, that sort of sets the tone. Uh, he goes on to emphasizes uh, the importance of uh, scripture where he says, Make no mistake, we as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. By the way, just to stop right there in that first sentence of this paragraph of that he's quoting from Schaefer, uh, it, it notice we're locked in a battle. This what is almost that was 40 years ago. Uh, and if you wrote the book 40 years ago, that means 40 years before that, there was also people who were saying things. Uh, in fact, we had articles. Uh, 
just recently that we're coming up to the hundredth so, uh, anniversary of the of uh, Jay Gratian Machen's great book on uh, Christianity and liberalism and the impact that it had and still continues to have. And so you read it, and if you don't know when it was first published, you would think it was published uh, and written just recently. So the point that we need to keep in mind in this big picture, as we have all our discussion, is that the church in every generation wrestles with these issues. The labels of the issues may change, but the substance uh, and the uh, concerns that they raise are exactly the same, the same emotions that we have. So, uh, so if he could write, uh, Shaver could write 40 years ago, we are locked in a battle. Well, you could have said that 40 years before that, like I said, and 40 years before that as well. Uh, this is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It's life and death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim uh, the name of Christ. It's a conflict on the level of ideas between two fundamentally opposed views of truth and reality. It's a conflict of the level of actions between complete moral perversion and chaos and God's absolutes. But do we really believe that we are in a life and death battle? Do we really believe that we're part uh, what the, the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men and women will spend eternity in hell? Or whether or not in this life people will live a meaning with meaning and meaning or meaninglessness, or whether or not those who do live will live in a climate of moral perversion and degradation. Sadly, we must say that very few in the evangelical world have acted as if these things are true, rather than our trumpet of our accomplishments and uh, rather than trumpet our accomplishments and revel in our growing numbers, it would be closer to the truth to admit that our response has been a disaster. So that's the warning. And so Bill Muhlenberger is just saying, um, let's go back and listen to this dear saying who God blessed us with in the life of the church, gave us so many things. And it, many people are populating heaven because of the ministry of Labrie and Francis Schaeffer's works. And those works are still having an effect today. So it's good to have that reminder to step back a little bit and see that what's going through today is not new. Uh, but at the same time, we have to it's new for us because we're living through it and we have to be found faithful at this time in our lives. Yeah, it's not new. But, you know, you mentioning that the author here is from Australia is a pastor in Australia. Mm -hmm. OK, so we all have to take I take this article in reference to what the government of Australia has done to the people there in response to COVID, putting them in camps. Now, I, I, I'm just going on a limb here. I know he didn't mention that, but I mean, Schaefer's book you reference, How Should We Then Live, is well, what do we how do we live? You know, specifically in an American context or if we just want to take a Western context. In 1974, Schaefer believed we lost the Christian consensus of our country when we made it legal to kill babies. And, and so his whole book was about, and if you go watch the YouTube series, by the way, you can still go to YouTube and, and type in how should we then live, and you'll actually get the video series he did. Uh, it's, it's you know, really grainy footage for all of us, uh, you know, who are accustomed to high-definition television, but it's still really powerful and really good if you want to go watch the, the video, how should we then live? But the context is, okay, so moral people, uh, I'm sorry, so immoral people, we're, we're to the point now when we're going to have more and more immorality, and immoral people will find a way to break the laws the government puts on them. So the government then comes back and is going to create new laws with newer restrictions to try to govern them. We're seeing this right now in Canada, by the way, with the truckers, and now their bank accounts are frozen. And then, and now I know we're talking in the context of a peaceful protest or, or whatnot, but you see how it still could apply. And so then, and then you, you just have this cycle where the government comes in and the people do this, and then the government does more, and the people. Do, and this is what Francis Schaeffer saw, and he specifically saw this. If you go watch the opening video of this series that he made back in the 70s, and he 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 went to Europe and he looked at the you know Roman roads and and I think that's what causes him to 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 write this and this is quoted in this piece uh soft days soft days for evangelical christians are past and only a strong view of scripture is sufficient to withstand the pressure of an all pervasive culture built upon relativism and uh uh relativistic thinking 
We must remember that it was a strong view of the absolutes which the infinite personal God gave the early church in the Old Testament, in the revelation of Christ through the incarnation, and and in then the growing New Testament. Absolutes which enabled the early church to withstand the pressure of the Roman Empire. Without a strong commitment to God's absolutes, the early church could uh, never have remained faithful in the face of the constant Roman harassment and persecution. And our situation today is remarkably similar as our own legal, moral, and social structure is based on an increasingly anti-Christian secularist consensus. This quote here from the 70s is incredible. I mean, and, and I know you're right, Dominic. I mean, we talked about this last week. Uh, everything has happened before and all this will happen again. But I feel like these quotes have a lot more meaning in the cycle <laughs> because uh, we're putting people in camps uh, now. And, and a Western-style government in Australia did that, where where this guy is trying to minister. It's kind of difficult to preach the gospel to folks or to shepherd your flock uh, if, if if they're in a camp. And I, th- I just feel like that's a context we need to uh, at least um, – consider when reading this uh, seventh article or or eighth article eighth article right uh, it is and i think it's helpful to have that sense where you can not only read uh, schaefer's warnings and uh or teachings because he's proactive as well and affirmative as well as the warnings uh that we need to be you know aware of you know what this uh, what's involved in the the task which then then brings us very segue into the ninth article. Um, it's called "Rise Up, Man." Rise up, man! A call to young elders. This is written by a young uh, minister himself, Jim McCarthy, uh, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church uh, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, um, and which he is calling on the younger men to come and um, you know speak up to. Uh, enter into the fray and battle. Uh, he uh, refers to uh, the what Paul told Timothy in his youth uh, from 1 Timothy 6.12. In the face of similar threats to the church in Ephesus, Paul called young Timothy to, quote, fight the good fight of faith, close quote. Uh, but does this, uh, but how does this young elder fight the good faith to the glory of God? And so he explains how we need to stand in the gap we need to know what's going on we need to define terms carefully in order that we can engage in the right battle on the right battlefield so certainly not by losing heart or resorting to disgraceful underhanded ways but by open statements of the truth that would uh, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god Uh, we fight the good fight by combating error and contending for the truth in our sessions, our presbyteries and assemblies, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to us on that account. That's from, uh, quote, that last part from the ordination six that uh, is said, take oath vow that is taken by every ruling and teaching elder and deacon in the church. So we fight the good fight uh, in each one of these places. We fight the good fight by, getting off the bench and getting involved in the committee work of the Presbytery and General Assembly. We fight the good fight by saying no to nominees, transfers, licensions, and court ordinance who will uh, not who will not condemn uh, revoice theology by affirming that even the orientation to sin is itself sinful. We might fight the good fight by renouncing passive-aggressive Presbyterianism uh, through filing charges against false teachers and sending up overtures to strengthen and safeguard the purity of our denomination and on and on uh, Jim McCarthy will go. So um, another challenge that we have here, uh, opinion piece uh, saying we love the church and we want to see the best happen for it. Uh, but in uh, we have to realize that uh, Satan loves nothing more than to come in and pervert and to distort and upset that which God is doing through his church, and we have to be found faithful following him. So very good article, touched a lot. Uh, So it was the ninth uh, numbered red article of last week in the Aquila Report. 
Yeah, it was uh, really good. Uh, it was uh, encouraging. You know, this is one of those articles that I think everybody should read and um, and be encouraged by it and um, to be bold. All right. And then the, the last one is also an opinion piece, and this is by Tom Harvey. Harvey. Uh, a, this is a part three of his five parts that he wrote, uh, especially in light of what took place uh, with the uh, – the release um, by somebody of the national partnerships emails going all the way back to 2013 to the present time. So that when they're printed out, it's something like 400 and some pages. And in doing that, it sort of opened up and pulled back the curtain uh, in terms of what that particular group in the life of the PCA was uh, doing since uh, that all this time from 2013. So he addresses the general topic or title for all five of the articles is A Sheep Speaks, and he's referring to himself as one of the sheep. A Testimony to the National Partnership, Part 3. And uh, he says in this one, he's, he who engages in denominational politics, regardless of his faction, must heed the danger of activism. Getting bogged down with politicking adversely harms the common work of ministry. Uh, in this, he explains that uh, being involved and being active is not a bad thing. The problem of activism is where the things can get down and dirty, where you forget what the uh, battle is all about. So we're just trying to win just to win, or we're prevailing and speaking in order to bring correction and encouragement uh, to make sure we're focused on the ministry that we have uh, before us. And so this these series of articles was really almost not almost the, the first article he makes clear that he was addressing it to those who have been active with the National Partnership, the NP, and uh, saying, have you realized this or realized that? And he points out things that he has seen as by standing back and looking at the big picture of what these emails uh, seem to say to him. Um, Thus, uh, you do effectively excuse what God condemns. This is now a summary of what he's challenging him on. And if you elsewhere teach an orthodox position, you ought to consider that such an inconsistency cannot uh, long exist. And that of one of the principles most uh, must eventually win out in other exclusion to the other. You cannot espouse an orthodox view of sexuality and marriage on the one hand, and then accept the concept of homosexual identity and put grace, uh, great uh, energies into asserting, quote, the right for self-professed homosexuals to lead in the church on the other, especially when the basic argument that is used to normalize such lust and the basic conceptions, a conception of those that uh, experience it is invading our denomination's public discourse from a wider culture and is not gleaned from God's word. So he just is calling, you know, pay attention to what you're saying. Uh, where is it in the confession? Where is it in the scripture? Uh, you can't take two absolutes and now try and force them together, uh, or at least two absolute uh, in terms of uh, in opposition to one another. So Tom Harvey is really serving and helping the uh, serving us in the church for all of us to take note of uh, where we stand. And so good counsel, good advice that comes from him uh, in these articles, number 10. Number 10, and he also goes on to say, picking up where you left off, Dominic, we are only having this debate because the culture has already done so. And if it had not done so, we would not be doing so now. For the impetus for it comes from culture and not from scripture. Right. And actually, that's what we've been saying in all these articles, hasn't it, uh, Paul, that uh, this is where uh, the, the church yes. is sort of who's leading who. And when culture does raise issues, uh, that should drive us in the church to the scriptures to say, what is it that God has already said on these issues? Because he has addressed and spoken of these through ethically and morally uh, in the context of the gospel, the grace and his uh, plan through creation and the providences that he put into the uh, world that he created. Well, this is the uh, 10 articles in the top 10 of the Aquila Report. Now, this is the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, so whether you're listening to this before the newsletter comes out on uh, February 22nd 
or you're listening to it afterwards. Hopefully we're, it's in, helpful to understand the context and the background, maybe explaining things a little, uh, that make things a little clearer. Uh, but we trust that you will just uh, engage and that you will have a sharpened mind, uh, that you will uh, have good discussions, that you will go back to the scriptures and that you will uh, wrestle with the issues that are before us and that you will urge your uh, leadership, the elders of your church, uh, the Presbytery and so forth to uh, give clarity. So the, again, the use of the phrase, the uh, illustration in scripture, let it be the trumpet sound, be a clear sound so that we know exactly uh, what it is, where to believe and how we're to rise up and deal with whatever the issues may be, whether we're three that we talked about today in race and the relationship in the, in the home with a, a man, woman, husband, wife, and also in human sexuality. So uh, there's where your issues are right now. Uh, ten, five years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to probably be discussing other things, but we need to make sure we're letting the scripture speak now. So we're thankful that you listen to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, may the Lord walk with you and bless you through his word.